This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the eighth episode of Crime Over Wine, the only podcast with head-scratching true crime stories that are just better over a bottle of wine. I'm your host, Liam Collins, and this week I have my New York gal as a guest co-host. She really does it all. She's a paralegal spin instructor and also my high school prom date. My co-host this week is Alex Seda. Hello, Alex. How are you? Hi, Liam. I'm so good. How are you? I'm so glad you mentioned the prom date part because like, I was really, I need, I needed to make sure that was like an emphasis and everything. Yeah, I'm right. so excited to be doing we this go way back. with you. We really do go way back. <laughs> so Alex and I met when we were just little teens, and while I still lived in New York, now she is a badass spin instructor at Cycle Bar in Montvale, New Jersey, so go check her out, and a paralegal at a small personal injury legal firm that also handles criminal defense cases, and as I just figured out, she also has some background in 9-11 compensation claims, too, so that will work very, very well into our story of the week. So we are all in for a treat because she can hopefully be a really great resource for us on the legal side of this story that I'm telling you about today. I was going to say, yeah, I'm super excited. I mean, obviously I'm in law school, so law and criminal stuff is almost my niche. I have been so fascinated with criminal stuff as far back as I could begin. A true, true crime junkie. I am. Like my mom makes fun of me all the time. Like I was one of those kids. I used to like sit watching like Law and Order SVU and like the cases and my mom sent me all these things like oh you need to watch this show like guilty or innocent all these things so I literally when you texted me to do this I was like I actually could not be more excited so <laughs> that's where it all begins for everybody is Elliot Stabler on SVU yes yes I, I mean I want to be Olivia Benson not gonna lie but it's okay fine. fair <laughs> yeah that's fair that's fair so let's get to our wine of the week yes we? obviously the most important part oh yeah duh yeah yeah duh so this week we are drinking the Biltmore Estates Pinot Grigio, named after the famous Biltmore in Asheville, North Carolina. It's Mm -hmm. off dry and creamy with lush tropical fruit aromas, flavors of white peach and hints of soft floral. So let's crack this bad boy open. Love that. I've been waiting. It's been sitting in my fridge. So I've been waiting Uh, to crack this open. Okay. Okay. Cheers to you, Alex. So good to have you on. So happy to be here. Uh, 
Okay, very refreshing. I feel like, okay, so I, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but I always, like, whenever I, because whenever I drink a glass of red, I take a sip of red, red I'm just mm-hmm. like, oh, it's so relaxing. Whenever I'm drinking red, I take a sip of a white or a rosé. I'm like, okay, let's freaking get at this thing. You know what I mean? Like, do you feel the same? Yes. <laughs> I feel the same. And it's funny because when you texted me and we're like, we're going to do a Pinot Grigio. I'm a big red gal, but I also mm-hmm. love whites. But at, if I were to like rank my like top whites versus like my lowest whites, Pinot Grigio's ironically at the bottom of my list. So you oh, texted me this. You texted me this, and I was like, okay, I'm just gonna go for it. Like I have friends who love Pinot Grigio, and I'm like, oh, okay, it's fine, it's fine. But I have to say, I really like this. I feel like Pinot Grigio's are on like the higher, more popular scale. So it's really interesting that you said that. But I think it is because of those like very light, um, fruity. Over, like very light fruit like not too crazy just like a really nice flavor to it um and it's not too it's not like not too like there are some wines like sweet wines that you just like just like jump down your throat and i feel like pinot grigio is a very good middle ground absolutely i was gonna say it's one of those things where i feel like sometimes pinot grigio fails to find the balance between that fruity because mm. i don't love too sweet but like also that mm. too dry yeah and i i tend to find that like pinot grigios have that weird imbalance but mm-hmm. again i'm very pleasantly surprised yeah. with this pinot grigio like mm-hmm. i really like it so excellent good pick. thank you oh <laughs> uh, anything for you alex anything for you so <laughs> what do you say we'd make this transition to our story of the week I'm so excited to get into this. I have so many thoughts about this story. Oh, I know you do. I know you do. You've been texting me about it all week long, and I love that. I love that so much. I'm so excited to hear what you have to say about this. So this week, I'm going to tell you the story of the most mysterious case of one of the faces of America's most tragic day. It's a complicated series of events that leads up to the same question. What really happened to an ambitious young doctor the night before the terrorist attacks on 9-11? This week, I'm going to tell you the story of Sneha Philip, the 2,751st victim. Sneha Philip was born on October 7th, 1969, in the southern Indian province of Kerala. She, her parents, and her two brothers moved to New York when they were just children. Her family describes her as creative. She loved painting, writing, and music, but those were just her hobbies. Growing up, she really wanted to be a doctor, just like her father. So she enrolls at Chicago Medical School to become an emergency services doctor. That's where she met the love of her life, Ron Lieberman is a young Jewish man from California. He's a year behind her in school, so she actually takes a year off to go travel while Ron catches up to her so they can graduate together. Like, so cute. So they both graduate in 1999 and move in together in New York. They find this small, dark apartment in Battery Park in Lower Manhattan. Battery Park City is a super, super, super nice area. Like, I mean, like when you're moving out of, or when you're moving into Manhattan, you're looking for like anything that could just like fill a space and like whatever Mm -hmm. you can afford but battery park city is beautiful yeah i can't imagine like i've known a lot of people who who go into the medical field and in their residencies like they don't make a lot of money the first couple years like i can't imagine how they're affording this it's the experience that everyone Mm -hmm. wants to be a part of it and especially when you're working in manhattan it's one of those things where you just want to be part of that hustle and bustle and 
in Battery Park City, you're also near like Wall Street. And so you're dealing mm-hmm. with all like the finance people. So everyone's like, go, 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 go. Yeah. yeah. It's the energy there that just like makes it absolutely for sure. Yeah. So Ron and Sneha's apartment is in like a beautiful neighborhood right in the thick of it all. It's just three blocks from the Twin Towers. Ron got his residency as an emergency medicine resident at Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx. And Sneha got her residency as an internal medicine resident at Cabrini Medical Center on East 19th Street. They got married in Dutchess County, New York in May of 2000, and it really seemed like everything was going right for them. They were living together in love and beyond happy. But pretty soon after that, things start spiraling for Sneha. The two of them start fighting about things. Nothing like really major, just like a lot of like small disagreements, things they don't necessarily see eye to eye on. So obviously, like you have two super busy people. So when I started reading into this, I was like, okay, they're clearly not agreeing on certain things. What? Why are they not agreeing on things? And again, this is like me knowing I'm obviously reading into something bigger. But as Mm -hmm. someone who's so invested in these like criminal things, I want to know everything from like the back burner. So I want to know, like, what are they fighting about? Why are they fighting about it? Is there anything that like makes... It makes these like little disagreements that maybe don't seem so major, but like makes sense. You know? So, yeah, certainly in hindsight, and I think that's really important to remember in, like, all these stories is that we are looking at this from a bird's eye view, right? Like, we are looking at this when we know what the ending is, and we are looking at these little teeny tiny things as, like, clues when, like, in reality, back then in the moment, they probably felt like nothing. So, Sneha had apparently started using drugs and alcohol and heavily, and has really started taking over her life. By May of 2001, it seeps deep into her professional life. Her hospital tells her that it won't be renewing her contract, which is essentially the equivalent of firing for residents. Her bosses said that she would often show up late and had problems focusing. There were even a few times that she showed up to work drunk. So the next month, Sneha is out at a bar with some coworkers when she says that a fellow intern sexually abused her. She says he grabbed her inappropriately. Well, she decides to go to his apartment to tell his wife what he did and she ends up hitting the man and the next day she files a police report. It just seems like, you know, at at that rate, it's kind of like a he said, she said kind Mm -hmm. of thing and, you know, you really need to get a lot of context surrounding it but, Mm -hmm. like, back then the way... And I'll, I say this because I know I'm like, my mom worked in HR. So like, mm. we talk about this a lot, but it's one of those things where the way sexual assault and harass, like sexual harassment was viewed at that day and age is so, so mm-hmm. different than the way we see it now. Oh, so different. And I think it's, um, you know, how this kind of unravels, I think is really telling of how different it was. When police look into the situation, they somehow determine that she is making the entire thing up. So they make a deal with her. They tell Sneha that if she recants the statement, they won't go through with any charges against her. But Sneha sticks to her story. She insists that, yeah, her coworker grabbed her and that she was only going to his apartment to confront him about it and expose what he had did to his wife, but it all kind of went sideways. But police aren't buying it. They charge her with filing false reports, assault, harassment, trespassing, and she was arrested and spent the night in jail. Which, like... <laughs> you're charging her with filing false reports, harassment, assault, trespassing. Those are huge charges. Oh, huge charges. And- And also, like, again, as a law student, like, everything you learn about, especially in your one year, is, like, every 
type of charge you have has certain elements. So like Mm -hmm. you necessarily wouldn't charge people with certain things unless you can meet every single one Mm -hmm. of these elements. Well, and it almost like it almost feels like a little bit of retaliation almost like just to kind of make her life a little bit harder because she's making his life a little bit harder. And I don't really know like much about this whole interaction that she had with her, with her coworker. Um, and I really wish I did. Um, but I, I guess I'm really interested to see like how intense it was. Like, I mean, evidently like police weren't called right then and there. Like she, she's one who got police involved. So it wasn't, it couldn't have been that big of a deal, but it definitely, like I said, it, it feels like a very retaliatory, thing no absolutely that's a thing and it's it, it it brought the same kind of like red flag almost to me that the police were not necessarily involved but like sort of involved in the beginning and then all of a sudden when they realized like maybe she was filing a false report or he kind of was like no this definitely isn't going on all of a sudden they were full-fledged like we have all these charges against you whereas to her reports it wasn't necessarily the same case. Right. So this is actually part of the reason Sneha's family gives for why she may have been fired from her job at Cabrini. According to them, this is pretty common behavior that's directed toward Hirsch, and she had apparently gone to supervisors about it at the hospital. She raised concerns about sexual and racial bias at Cabrini, and they stand by that she was dismissed because she blew the whistle. But this situation seemed to really affect Sneha moving forward. Forward. She had apparently become very depressed, and this is when her abuse of alcohol starts to take a turn for the worst. In July, she's placed on modified duty at her new job at St. Vincent's Medical Center. This is because she reportedly did not attend counseling services for substance abuse, which was a contingency of her job because of her past issues. I've done mock simulations on retaliation. Retaliation like very hard not hard to prove but you Mm. have to have a lot of evidence against you that like people like Mm -hmm. there's retaliation against you and there's direct evidence against Mm -hmm. it even if for like a specific reason too right exactly so to me it's like if you're suspecting retaliation and you give these like well i just feel this way that's not Mm -hmm. enough for retaliation it just seemed all like they were very weary about her there was something Mm -hmm. about her and maybe her personality and you know you shouldn't from one job to another carry someone's mm-hmm. character. Yeah, but I also think, too, like, this is all evidence of kind of Sneha's gradual unraveling. So, as the days creep up to what would become Sneha's mysterious disappearance, things start to appear even more consequential for Sneha, and as the timeline starts to get even murkier. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. On September 10th, 2001, Sneha is not at work on Staten Island. Instead, she is at her criminal court hearing where she is pleading not guilty to those misdemeanor charges from June. 
Ron is accompanying her and probably providing her some emotional support since she's noticed Sneha has really been struggling with this situation since it all started. But after the court hearing, Ron and Sneha get into another fight. They argue again over her lifestyle choices, including her abuse of drugs and alcohol. I had to pour myself another glass of wine for this because we're really going to get into this now. So... Obviously, on September 10th, she's dealing with all these issues, like why she's not reporting to work. I feel like with mm-hmm. Ron, I've always been skeptical just from the back end, again, reading into this, figuring out what his deal is. Mm. He seems supportive, obviously, when he goes to court with her to try to support her. But like, is that a facade? That's the first thing I'm questioning is what is his, what is his mm. kind of ammo? And again, knowing mm. knowing what we get into. So, and then obviously, like you just said, after they're getting into fights, dealing with her lifestyle choices. Like, what is mm-hmm. what is his contention? What is she saying to him? Yeah. Like, so um, it's so I never even suspected him. Honestly, like that thought never even crossed my mind, which is so interesting because I mean, police. I'm sure they looked into him as a suspect, you know, at some point because that's just you know they, the first person they go to, um, is the the husband or the spouse or whoever right, always. Know, is, is intimately involved. But the, you know, as we're about to find out, he they have Ron and, and Sneha have a very interesting relationship, but. Um, interestingly enough, though, Ron later denies that this fight ever happens, but we'll get to that point a little later on, and I can see that you have a lot of questions about that, so too, many. so I'm sure it's going to be great, <laughs> that's going to be a great conversation. By 10.30 that morning, Ron and Sneha return to their apartment in Battery Park City to have breakfast, and Ron has to leave for work about an hour later. He kisses her goodbye, tells her he loves her, and then just goes off. This is the last time that Ron would ever see Sneha. Sneha has the day off of work and has the ultimate freedom day for a 31-year-old woman, just her and the cats. She cleans up around the apartment, which she says is because her cousins were coming over the next day for dinner. She meditates, repotted some orchids, and gets on an instant messenger chat with her mom around 2 o'clock. They talk for hours, and her mom later tells ABC7 New York that she expressed some excitement and joy about her and Ron's marriage. She talked about his music and how she was ready to have children. She may have even mentioned how she wanted to go visit a wedding venue that her old friend was getting married in. It was called Window to the World, and it was on the top floor of the Twin Towers. So this is huge to me, obviously seeing this now in 2023. At that time, obviously no one knew like September 11th Mm -hmm. was going to happen. Right. But it's just like, is anyone else curious about what she's doing that day? Where she's Mm -hmm. going, who she's going places with? I mean, she has criminal charges against her. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, of course, she should be able to be free, do what she wants. And like, maybe her mother doesn't realize what's happening with her. Mm -hmm. But obviously knowing everything now, it's one of those things. It's like, how are people not questioning who she's going places with, mm-hmm. what she's doing, especially her husband. Yeah. Keeping in a better eye on her if she's really struggling that badly with it, too, you it, think. Exactly. You have these alcohol issues. You have these drug issues. Like, you never know what someone's going through. So, obviously, you have the issues with the job, but you're also wondering, like, maybe is there any, like, mental health aspects? 
So around four o'clock, Sneha tells her mom that she is going to go run some errands, and her building's doorman tells police that he saw her leave the building at around 5.15 to 5.30. Sneha goes to Century 21, about a 10-minute walk away. There, Sneha spends about $500 on her husband's credit card. She buys a dress, bed linens, three pairs of shoes, and also some lingerie. So this is, like, so peculiar to me. Why is she going to Century 21 spending $500 randomly? Is that something mm-hmm. that's normal? of her is is she mm. nor is she usually spending it on her card not her husband's like those are the questions mm. i'm asking yeah so this is the last place we know for sure sneha was on september 10th 2001 that's because police later discover that she was seen on the store security camera where she went after that though is still a complete mystery a mystery that could be explained if her family may have known more at the time about a life she was living completely unbeknownst to any of them. When Sneha leaves the store, ABC7 New York reports that it was pouring rain, like really bad weather, thunder, lightning, the whole works. So most people would assume that she likely went off somewhere closer than her apartment, which again was like seven or to ten blocks away. Maybe a friend that lives nearby. Her brother doesn't live too far away either, but to this day we don't know that for sure. What we do know is that when her apartment's doorman leaves his shift around 11 o'clock, he says Sneha did not return. And when Ron gets home from work around 11.30, Sneha is still not home. He waits up for her a while, but decides that he's going to sleep. I mean, I had so many questions about this to begin with, but my biggest question is like, Ron, I'm sorry, like, you just, after the fact, did he just go to bed? Like, he's not worried about her at all? Yeah, so no, because Ron and Sneha actually have a bit of a unique arrangement. It's actually pretty common for Sneha to stay out late with people Ron didn't know at places she wouldn't tell him about. It was apparently part of the arguments they had been having recently because it had been happening um, more frequently, but he still wanted her to have her freedom, just maybe not as often. So there was like two parts of this that really like made me very complex, (laughs) if you will. So the first part is You know, you have a video recording of her at this store. And again, Mm. maybe it's just because the times and now in 2023, we have so much more. But like, you don't have any other video recording of where Mm -hmm. she could have gone. Like, you walk out of the store. You didn't see her go right. You didn't see her go left. Like, anything. Yeah, especially in New York City. You definitely have external cameras. Right. That's what I'm thinking. Like, you have nowadays like new york city has so many cameras like you could Mm -hmm. tell where anyone is Mm, at any point you know what i mean but then my second point is i'm still so concerned that her husband just isn't concerned about where she is or why Mm. she may have been out not returning home like and again you just brought up the fact that like she just tends to go to all these places and no one knows like do we know where like she could have possibly gone so police later report that she would often hang out at well-known gay bars in the city. Three in particular. Julie's, Harrietta Hudson's, and Meow Mix. So, like, 
was she bisexual is my next question. Well, the way I've seen it described was that she had bisexual tendencies. And I have seen some reporting that that was part of what Ron and Sneha had also been fighting about over the last few months. But typically, if Sneha does go out all night, she always comes back between around 7 and 9 the next morning. So Ron isn't super worried about her at this point. He also thinks that Sneha may have gone over to her brother John's apartment. She goes over there pretty often, and he thinks she may have gone over there to make up with him, since they also had just gotten into a really big fight recently. So I just feel like if they were fighting about it, clearly they were also conversing about these things. Mm-hmm. So so why at that point did he not know where maybe she would have got? like, did they get in a fight kind of earlier that day? Or like, what happened with her that she decided not to return home that night and then never tell her husband? Yeah. So, um, you know, I also, you know, what, what kind of sticks out to me at this point is, you know, we always tell people, like, if you know somebody who is outside of their normal routine, like, that's when you report something to police. And at this point, everything that I've seen from her... It seems like this is part of her routine, Mm -hmm. that she does often just, like, not show up for days on end, and everyone's just fine with that? Like, I don't know. That's the whole thing. And, again, maybe it's, like, the times then versus the times now, but, like, Mm -hmm. when you see someone in this constant cycle and constant consistency of like when things go wrong you don't show up or things go wrong this Mm -hmm. like you're constantly questioning these things so it's like why was no one questioning anything at that Mm. point why was no one wondering like why did everyone think this was just so normal and like it could go on and it was kind of like a no worries she'll come back Mm. eventually because like yeah again god forbid something happened to her with at this rate you know what i mean spoiler alert (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> something not, something bad happened. <laughs> so Ron wakes up the next morning without Sneha and heads to work around 6.30. He has to make an 8 o'clock meeting at the hospital. When he gets out of the meeting around 9, he notices some of his coworkers watching Awestruck at television screens. He sees the images that the world today cannot erase from their minds. They were watching smoke billowing from the Twin Towers in Lower Manhattan. By now that morning, the North Tower was struck in what the world had assumed to be just a tragic accident. But just a few minutes later, another plane had struck the South Tower, and the public knew it was something much more sinister. Over the next hour and a half, the world would watch in horror as both towers crumbled to the streets of New York City and simultaneously two other attacks would kill hundreds of more people at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and also at a plane crash in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, after it was hijacked by terrorists. And Alex, um, I just want to take a moment here to pause in the middle of this story and think about the thousands of people who were affected by 9-11 and this morning. We both grew up right outside of Manhattan, and I know you can relate when I say that everyone from where we grew up has some kind of connection to that day. If, if you don't know somebody, you know somebody who knows somebody. Everyone knows someone in connection. And I can say this, like my uncle was a first responder. His mm-hmm. fire department was in Queens and went down to the towers that day. Mm-hmm. And these attacks affect everyone to this day, mm-hmm. to the point where people are still getting sick from these illnesses. Mm-hmm. People Absolutely. are still, you know, cancer, aerodigestive conditions. It's horrible Mm -hmm. what happened that morning and everyone's life on that morning and even 
the days after, especially not knowing what happened to certain people, froze. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that morning, thousands of people are frantically trying to check on their loved ones, trying to make sure they are safe. And Ron is among them. Ron tries their house phone, but there is no answer. But Ron is an emergency doctor and he is seeing the widespread terror playing out throughout the city. So he needs to stay at his hospital and put- and wait for potential patients. By 3 p.m., no patients had made their way to Ron's hospital in the Bronx. So he asks a supervisor if he can go find his wife, who says yes. So Ron hitches a ride via an ambulance down to Ground Zero. It takes him six hours to get from his hospital in the Bronx to Lower Manhattan. Still in his scrubs, he walks right past police lines, cars engulfed in flames, and overturned fire trucks to get to his apartment. When he gets there, it's dark. There's no power, and so his front doors will not open. He notices a lit window, so he yells to get his neighbor's attention to go knock on his door and check on Sneha. The neighbor agrees, but reports back that there was no answer. At this point, Ron decides he needs to be useful, so he goes down to Ground Zero to volunteer. By two in the morning, he is distraught, emotional, tired, and still unsure of where Sneha is. He walks to a friend's apartment in the West Village to spend a restless night. By the next morning, Manhattan is a bizarre scene. And like we described, I mean, the city that never sleeps was silent at a standstill. Hundreds of families are searching through the rubble and asking anyone and everyone if they've seen their loved ones. 9,000 people were reported missing from that day. Some were unsubstantiated and others were found to be filed fraudulently. Ron returns to his apartment and is able to get inside. It is covered in soot. The only evidence of life are the paw prints trailing from the mess from their two cats, but there is no sign of Sneha. Instead, Ron finds Sneha's driver's license, passport, and credit cards. Which is crazy, because my understanding was you had to show several IDs get to get past several checkpoints. Mm. You couldn't just, like, walk into Ground Zero. Oh, it yeah. wasn't, like, a place... It wasn't a place where people were just kind of like, oh, I'm here to volunteer. So oh, that was huge to me that, like, he got past that point. Or not even that you had to show proof of work, but you also had to show proof of maybe residence or something. So the fact that he was... Obviously, he was able to get through that area through his... Um, you know, hospital credentials. Um, but the fact that he then goes into his apartment and finds her license, passport, and credit yeah. cards is was so interesting to me. Yeah, I um, you know, I have a lot of questions about that. I just because even if because even if you leave your like, I never leave my house without my wallet. You know, like passport, obviously, right? Like, I only use no, that if I of travel. course. Like, again, like, even, like, if you're just out and about and, like, you know, you know, whatever happens at, at 9-11, like, you know, you get caught up in it, you still have your driver's license on you. Of course, I would you guess. always have that on you. Yeah, right. And even the night before, she was, sh- she was supposedly shopping. So mm-hmm. it's like, where did these shopping bags go? What, did she drop them in the apartment? Did she leave them mm-hmm. somewhere else? Did she just kind of abandon them and then, like whatever happened, Mm. happened. Like, if those are the questions I'm asking. Yeah, so the shopping bags are a really interesting point for me, too, because, like, we never see the shopping bags ever again. Like, we have no idea where those items went. Like, to this day, we have no idea what the heck happened to the lingerie, the dress, the shoes, and the sheets. 
And I want to know where those sheets are. Me too. Like, I've never been more invested in a, in a, in a set of sheets in my entire <laughs> life. Like, I want to know exactly where they are. No, as do I. So Ron calls everyone Sneha knows, trying to get an idea of where she may have gone. But they all said the same thing. They hadn't seen Sneha in days. Sneha's family decides to join those families desperately, trying to find their loved ones in the streets of Manhattan. Missing persons flyers were plastering the walls and light posts at every corner of New York City. They tried desperately to get news coverage for Sneha and get pretty close at times, but once reporters find out that Sneha wasn't believed to be in the Twin Towers on 9-11, the interest kind of wanes. I mean, that is the biggest story in the world right now, and that is all anyone wants to hear or talk about. This is taking over a lot of lower Manhattan, obviously. In this aspect, you know where she was at this point the night before. Who was she with? Where was she? Does that person mm-hmm. know where Sneha went at that point? Like, I have so mm-hmm. many questions that honestly require, you just inspired me, another pour of wine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that. Yes. Yeah, no, we did a lot more wine. All of a sudden, I was like, oh, I need to go for this one. Because we're really getting into it. Yeah. Now. No, we are. We're getting the thick of it. This is the thick of it, for sure. So, two days later, on September 13th, Ron files a missing persons report with the police department, telling officers that they hadn't seen Sneha since the day before the attacks, but he can tell that once those words leave his lips, the interest is just not there. So, lost and feeling hopeless, Sneha's brother makes a decision that doesn't do the family any favors. That night, John gets down to a group of reporters sharing faces and stories of people who had still been unaccounted for since the attacks. John is able to get on live television with ABC7 New York and shares this heroic story of how he was on the phone with Sneha while she was in the towers as they were hit. He tells the reporter he selfishly told her to get out of the towers, but she said, no way, I need to help people. And that was the last time he had heard from his sister. Except it was all a lie. John knew that Sneha was not in the towers on that day, but he was desperate to get people to care about his sister. It's a move that would later do much more harm than good. Which is so crazy to me when I read this, because obviously she's a doctor at this time. And like, you hear Mm -hmm. all these stories about people rushing into the towers who were in the area because they wanted to save people. And obviously with Sneha, that's a huge deal because she was a doctor. All she wanted to do was help people. I feel like a lot of the story pinpoints her at like she was likely in that area when in fact mm-hmm. like we don't actually know. Yeah, I mean I think in, in, like you you hit the nail on the head there. I think like logically, you know, knowing what you know about Sneha, she was she had this background of of you know of um you know being a doctor, being an emergency doctor at that. You know, I think that it would it would make sense for her to see what's see what was happening and rush toward it. Um so the story itself I don't think is that insane. Um but you know, the fact that they just made it up is what kind of gets me. It's like, okay, like, that's not, like, that, like, what, what, how, who do you think you're helping here? Cause, like, who knows what the, where the heck she is. Right. And then it's also the other part of, okay, she may have been in that area. Again, she lived in Battery Park City, which is Battery Park mm-hmm. City is what, five, six blocks from oh. where the towers were, but no one can yeah. account for her being that there that night. Mm-hmm. So it's not like she woke up that morning, saw what was going on and rushed to the scene. Like, no one knew mm-hmm. where she was at that point. Yeah. 
So police do end up looking into Sneha and they begin questioning the family, which I feel is pretty common, even without the stories that they're telling that aren't adding up. Police really need to create a timeline of Sneha's disappearance and who better to help do that than her family. Ron tells police the exact story I just told to you. He tells investigators that he hadn't seen his wife since he left for work on September 10th after they got home from her court date. And he explains to officers about her history of drug and alcohol abuse and how it had been really affecting her life. He also mentions that fight he had with Sneha after her court appearance, but again, he would later deny that that fight ever happened. John backs Ron up in telling police that Sneha had been acting strange recently, going out with people no one knew and not coming back to their apartment for as many as two days. Other than that, though, John says Sneha was acting pretty normal, but he says he hadn't really spoken to his sister since they had gotten into a fight two days before she disappeared. Okay, now this just adds another layer to the story. You have someone who was vouching for her this whole time, and then all of a sudden it comes about that, oh, you know, everything was fine, but we had gotten to a fight two oh, days later. but also that fight. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Like, oh, come on. Like, oh, silly me, just forgot to mention yeah. that. Like, they had gotten to a fight. Like, that's my first mm-hmm. You had gotten to a fight? What? Why? Yeah. So John tells investigators that on September 8th, 2001, he is hanging out and having a few drinks with his girlfriend in his apartment when they run out of alcohol. So he steps out to go pick up some more. And he is shocked to return to find that his girlfriend and Sneha are having sex on their couch. This is the biggest revelation to me, truthfully, because... Like, where did... What? what? Literally, all I can say is, what? And at that point, she's married. Yeah. She is in a relationship. Oh, scandalous. Scandalous. The biggest... This is a huge scandal. Yeah. So, the person you think you know, because everything that I've read up to this point, that between them, they seem super close. So, now I'm like, okay, what's happening here? You don't know the person you think you're closest to as well as you do. And at this point, this requires more wine, if you ask me. Yeah, well, and also, like, how long was he at that liquor store? Like, how, where, where is the liquor store at that, like, right. like, you were gone and long enough for this to happen that, like, you think you're going to be able to get away with it? Right, like, but also, how long weird. was that happening? How long? Like, yeah. you can't tell me, right. like, it was a one and done, like, oh, we're just going to, like, tempt it mm-hmm. at this point. Like, Oh, yeah, no, for sure. He's definitely stepped out for the li- to, the, to go to the liquor store before and has, and, you know, they've, they've snuck in a quickie before, like, you know, it just happened. And, like, he took a little, like, the line was a little shorter this time. (laughs) Did Ron know about this? So, I have no idea. And do you want to know why I have no idea about this, Alex? Of course I want to know why. Because, again, John denies that this ever happened. Investigators say John tells them that he and Sneha got into a big blow-up fight. And if you remember, Ron does mention that that they were fighting at the time. But later, John tells reporters that the investigators made, like, the whole entire thing up. That's, ugh, I just can't. It just doesn't make sense to me that he doesn't know about this. And there's just so many things that make it seem like he would have known about this. And even if he did, like, Mm -hmm. is he hiding something? Is he trying to protect her? Is Mm -hmm. he trying to protect someone else? Like, these are the things that, like, 
especially when you go into things of like why someone did something, there's always someone who's trying to protect someone. That's just the reality of the situation. More blows my mind is like, what, what does the family think that like the investigators have to gain by making this up? Like why, what do they think the purpose is? That that's what's crazy is like people want to get answers. And then when they hear answers that they don't want Mm -hmm. or like responses that they don't want, people get defensive. So that's how I kind of saw this is that the family almost got defensive rather than like, Yeah. curious as to like why investigators were creating these like narratives they almost got defensive with it like well why would you mm-hmm. say that about my daughter well right. like let's be real here these things may have been going on you just don't want to hear it so around this time the family gets the break they've been searching for a saleswoman at century 21 sees a missing persons flyer for sneha that ron had put up near the store the salesperson says she remembers seeing sneha on september 10th and says she believes she saw Sneha with another woman. So this is when the family, though, gets a good look at the surveillance video that I mentioned before, the last known picture of Sneha before she went missing. But there's no video evidence of the friend, and the saleswoman doesn't actually know for sure if she was with Sneha or just, like, shopping near her that day. By December 2001, the family hires a private investigator who gets a look at Sneha's bank records, which don't show any unusual activity and no large sums of cash that had been withdrawn. The PI also looks through her phone records and her computer, which both show nothing unusual, and she doesn't appear to have any unknown contact with anyone. But there is a call made from Ron and Sneha's apartment phone to Ron's cell phone around 4 in the morning on September 11th. Ron says he doesn't remember this call, but it's possible he sleepily checked his voicemail that morning while waiting for Sneha to come home. At this point, like, with investigation, like, with what they have, they clearly don't have much to go off of at that point. Yeah, no, they don't. But it is around this time that they get the break they've been waiting for. Investigators are able to get their hands on their surveillance video from the lobby of Ron and Sneha's apartment building the morning of September 11th. Now, I couldn't find what time the video was recorded, which is really important in this case, so hold that thought. But it's important to note that the sun was really bleaching out the lens, so you would imagine it was probably recorded, like, first thing in the morning, probably around 7 or 8 o'clock. On top of that, it's an old grainy camera, so it's really poor quality. But in the video, family members see a woman enter the building who they believe to be Sneha based on the clothes she is wearing and some of her mannerisms. But there is no sign of the shopping bags from her trip to Century 21 the night before. The woman waits around the elevators for a few minutes and then just leaves the lobby. Right. So I feel like just with all this speculation, I could never imagine being the family. Like, what did they think mm-hmm. happened. So based on that surveillance video, they believe that Sneha was likely coming home after her night away when she heard the crash of the airplanes hitting the Twin Towers and her curiosity kicked in since, remember, they lived just a few blocks away from the site. Being an emergency medicine resident, they believe she likely ran to go help when the second plane hit and the towers crumbled, killing her and thousands others. So it's just so crazy hearing that because it's like you want to believe that because knowing who she was as a person like what her career was but there's something in me that like 
I don't know. I just, I, I can't, I can't get on board with that theory that that's what happened to her. And I hear these stories again from the work I did where it was one of those things where like all these people were accounted for or people had to show IDs. People, you know, at, at one point before, maybe before or after the towers had collapse like people were being accounted for i think that's such important context that i don't really think anyone could could give except for someone in your position um because it you know you you couldn't just walk onto a scene like you said of a crime scene like you had to like there had to have been some sort of evidence that she was there and again Keep in mind, her identifications are inside of her apartment. There were so many checkpoints at that point that someone would have been able to account for her at some point, maybe. And there's just no link there that's like getting me to that point where that story of her Mm -hmm. rushing into the towers, there's just nothing there for me that's like, okay, she was there. I just, I, I don't believe it. Well, and that's why I love that you're on this episode, um, because I love, because I never would have known that. Um, so I'm so glad you're here mm-hmm. to give that context. But as months pass beyond the horror and tragedy of 9-11, the city begins to focus on healing. New York City moves to immediately issue death certificates to anyone who was still missing from the attacks, including Sneha. It's a move that allows family members to begin getting benefits and to take advantage of life insurance policies as the medical examiner is still inundated with bodies to identify. The city had also made moves to give special compensation to victims' families, setting up the 9-11 Victims' Compensation Fund. Because of Sneha's age and other circumstances, her compensation would have been anywhere from about $3 million to $4 million. But around this time, a judge denies Sneha's family's claims for compensation, saying not only is there no proof Sneha died on 9-11, but there are also serious questions about her and her family's credibility, given the number of times they had changed their story about the circumstances of Sneha's disappearance and also, like, flat-out lied about it. The judge also says that her professional problems and her social relationships may have been attributable to her prolonged absence. Another judge says the interaction with Sneha's brother's girlfriend was evidence of inconsistencies with the family's portrayal of Sneha's lifestyle. And Alex, I know you spent some time, as you said before, doing this exact work, so I'm hoping you can explain from a legal perspective why all these points may have been relevant to the judge. Right. Okay, so I can give, like, maybe two sides of everything. So Mm -hmm. when you go into the side of, like, the Victims' Compensation Fund, I only know the Victims' Compensation Fund in, like, stage two, where... I don't know what pe- how decisions were made to the families and the people that were affected on the day of. I only understand it to the people that were affected and now treated for, mm. you know, cancerous and aerodigestive okay. conditions of like when they were there. But what I do know from that aspect, you have to prove that you were there. You have to be able to have at this point, the way the victims compensation fund works is you have to have at least two eyewitnesses to say, hey, we were, yeah. So it's like, hey, we were there at this time. Here was the work that we did. And here's what we were almost like breathing in, which is crazy. Mm. On top of the fact that like, 
it's gotten so severe that they make you do like employment verification. There's all these different things. So I think when reading this story, the fact that she wasn't accounted for in within like, let's say 12 hours, 14 hours of when the attacks happened is huge. I think it would have been different in the sense of, you know, she came home at 12 o'clock at seven o'clock in the morning, she was going to work. And it's likely that she would have like went to these attacks would have been a different story but the fact that like no one can account for her in the area to say like she would have made it back into the area at that time I think is kind of major I think in this instance Sneha's family is being perceived as a group of people who have the tendency to lie or fabricate stories, which... Or at the very least, exaggerate. Right, which can be used against people mm-hmm. in the court of law. Yeah, they were willing to flag. almost... Yeah, right, it's, it's huge. And they have a tendency to lie to make a story less or more believable or less or more likely. And also, too, I think, to like notable here, to make her look better than what we all know actually was going on beneath the surface. Right, exactly. So after years of appeals, a judge does eventually rule that Sneha is a victim of 9-11 and is officially named the 2,751st victim of the terrorist attacks on Ground Zero. But I think still the gray area is the fact that it's not like she was accounted for it being at her home in Battery Park and Mm -hmm. just maybe going to work and then saying like, oh, she may have turned around and gone to the Ground Zero. But then it's also like, I think about And this is, like, so unbelievable to me, but just to, like, I guess play a little bit of devil's advocate here, like, you know, there was, like, there was that conversation that she had with her mom about visiting the top floor because of that wedding venue, but... At the same time, like, who's going to be doing that at 8 o'clock in the morning? That was and my thought. you were not seeing the day since the day before. Like, I could buy you being there on September 10th. Sure. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. Totally. I totally see that. September 11th, don't see that at all. Well, that that was my thought, too, is, okay, I took into consideration the fact that she told her mom, oh, I want to see this venue. Mm-hmm. You're not telling me that you were going there at 8 o'clock in the morning. There's right. just nothing that can convince Why would she? me. Right. Why? It's not your wedding. If it was her wedding, I could see that. Not not Maybe. your friend's wedding. Right. But 8 o'clock in the morning, at, to my, in my mind, people are still commuting to work. People yeah. are still getting places. Why are you there at 8 o'clock yeah, in the morning? Yeah, and I'm sure this wedding venue isn't even sense. open. Like, I don't know any wedding, right. wedding venue that's open at 8 o'clock in the morning. Me either. That's, what, that's yeah. why it does not make sense to me. Yeah. No, that that makes no sense to me either. I'm right there with you, 100%. So, a few predominant theories, though, do prevail about Sneha's disappearance. The first being that she was indeed a victim of 9-11, and this is the story her family is sticking with to this day. They say she died heroically, trying to save people from the site of the attack. On the first anniversary of the attack, the family goes to a local memorial in Poughkeepsie, New York, where they hear her name read. Then, three days later, they bury ashes from Ground Zero and officially lay Sneha to rest. But, I don't know, Alex, and I know you're right here with me, I'm not sure I'm as convinced at the reason why 
is simply because the family has clearly not been as reliable as they could have been. I mean, there were so many situations where they outright lied to intentionally create this narrative of Sneha's final moments as heroic and, you know, righteous and I'm not there. The credibility of them is out the door at this place. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. so far-fetched at this point. And also, I again, I don't know. I've never looked into this fully. But my understanding is that like the people that couldn't be accounted for is the people that were like known to be in the mm-hmm. area and may have been there. But it's just like their specific DNA was never yeah. tested. And again, at that point, like with Sneha, like, of course she lived in the area. That's a possibility, but there's mm-hmm. no there's no other evidence to me that's connecting, especially knowing Link she that. was mysteriously mm-hmm. missing the night before. That would make me believe that, okay, she would have been there the next morning and just so happened to rush into the area. So another theory is that Sneha was met with foul play the night before the attacks. This theory suggests that Sneha may have been attacked after she left Century 21. Now, there is only one confirmed murder outside of Ground Zero on 9-11. Herrick Siwiak, a Polish immigrant, was shot and killed in Brooklyn around 11.30 at night, and his case is still unsolved to this day. And there is, like, I can't even talk about this case because there, I, like, I'll go off on a tangent because there's so much for me to talk about here. So I'm just going to leave it at that. I could literally do a whole, whole nother episode on Herrick. So let's just leave it at that. Like, potential foul play. What do you think, Alex? See, to me, there was not enough evidence to show any evidence of foul play. Mm-hmm. To, if I'm going to be completely honest, when you're looking at a murder or a, a kidnapping anything of that you're looking for like intent you're looking for emotive you're mm-hmm. looking for something and to yeah. me with the, what i know i i'm just not seeing that here yeah. it, it wouldn't make any sense there's there's no one who had an oust for her well i mean though i mean and i i totally agree with you i think the motive part when you said motive i was like yeah girl go off but like i also <laughs> think too like the like I mean, it is New York City. Weird crap happens all the time. And so I would, like, you know, I, I mean, the, where my, but it's, I'm, I don't know. I guess it's also like what, like 730 at this point, probably when she, when she right. leaves the store. So I mean, I could just see though, like, you know, a robbery gone, gone wrong again. Just to, I don't think this would happen. Again, I just do think I just to play a devil's advocate, though, you know, just to, you know, I I could see that I could see that potentially happening, her taking a wrong turn and then just encountering someone who has bad intentions. But to me, you have security cameras inside. Where are the security cameras outside? Yeah. Where Again, maybe again, 2001, mm-hmm. maybe it's different. But like, I know New York City now and there are security cameras at Every corner, everywhere, every corner, like everywhere. you cannot get away with anything because there are security cameras everywhere. Yeah. So the last theory I have is one I particularly think probably makes the most amount of sense. This theory is that Sneha may have seen the attack happen and then saw it as an opportunity to just leave and start over. So she was clearly hiding a lot, holding on to a lot. And it's possible that she saw this as her way out. Maybe everyone would assume exactly what they did about her and say she got just a fresh start. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. When she found out about Sneha's disappearance, a coworker from her time at Cabrini said, quote, Sneha did it. 
She got exactly what she wanted. She got away. And look, I am never, never one to look at a missing person's case and think that they just took off and never looked back. That is just too hard for the average person to pull it off unless you're in, like in the mob, <laughs> especially without their IDs, credit cards, or anything else. But in this case, I do think it's possible, only because Sneha was truly spiraling leading up to September 11th, 2001. And what better way to vanish than when the entire world is looking at your neighborhood and nowhere else? Oh, I'm so glad you bring this up as I just poured my heaviest pour of the night because I'm ready to get into this. Go for it. Oh, listen, I think that is so plausible. I mean, the day after you mm-hmm. have this huge catastrophe in New York City that like everyone is looking there, that is her like easy ticket. But you're telling me that yeah. she just mysteriously vanished on September 10th. Obviously, no one knew September 11th was going to happen. You're telling me like you plan this whole like I'm going to get away, start this new life and like Here's my perfect getaway is everyone's going to be focusing on this, that no one's going to pay yeah. attention to me getting away. They're just going to think I vanish here. Like that is so like, that's almost too calculated. I don't know. So here, here's, here's what I think happened. Here's just my Liam theory. I think that it's likely that a lot of the combinations yes. of kind of everything we talked about happened in terms of, you know, that was her on that security camera video in the yes. lobby. She's, you know, found, she heard what happened, ran out, went to help, and then kind of got done with it and said, you know what? Now's my time. Now's my time to vanish, to go into thin air, and no one would come look for me, and everyone, everyone would think that I died on that. Right. No, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. It makes almost too mm-hmm. much sense, but it's just like, there's so many little holes in anything that still don't almost convince me. Yeah. The other theory that I've had that you really haven't brought up and I don't, I don't mean to jump the gun. Please insert another theory. Please go, please, please, please. My one theory that I also read into is that she committed suicide and like, it just, it just was never investigated. So my whole theory with this is you have the attacks that obviously happened on September 11th. There were so many things to preoccupy everyone who would have possibly been investigating this that just like took over. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I, uh, yeah, you know, I never even thought about the suicide theory. I do, I do have a problem with that only in that I would imagine if she did commit suicide, like something would have come up at this point, unless it's like, I mean, the only, the only place I could think that you would, like, commit suicide and never be, like, shown ever again is, like, literally the Hudson River. And that is, like, you'll be gone forever if you jump in the Hudson River. So here's my know? thought with that is why I'm so invested in this is with the Hudson River theory, at that time, like, obviously 9-11 happened and it was at the World Trade Center. And there are issues with people who were brought across to New Jersey or people who attempted to file claims of, I had had Mm -hmm. an apartment in New Jersey on the water and no one ever investigated it. People weren't looking into the water. People were looking into the pile at Ground Zero. I don't know. I think... I think back to like how many mysterious deaths there have been in the Hudson River too. And I just like, I feel like they've probably combed through that river so many times between now and then. Like they would have found 
something. Like, don't you think? No, I agree. Like, maybe they would. That, well, that was my one thought when I thought of this theory. Because, again, I've read all the theories on this. And I was like, okay, if she attempted suicide in the Hudson River, her body would have washed up somewhere. Yeah, at some point. At yeah, some yeah, yeah, point. So true. But I'm mm-hmm. like, maybe it's a possibility that maybe she just, like, held her. I don't know. Like, Again, anchored herself down and was never found. Yeah. I don't know. I find that I find that very hard to believe, Alex. I really I'm not on board on that theory at all. <laughs> I just don't I'm not there. Okay. I'm really not there. I, I listen, there's there's so many theories and nothing has like a conclusive end. Which oh, is makes, what's nothing crazy makes about sense. this story. Is there's no like conclusive end to this story. Yeah. Yeah. If you're if you're hanging on to the end to find out what happens, like you're in for a really like rough ending. So, still no concrete evidence Sneha was ever at Ground Zero on 9-11, but that doesn't mean that there won't ever be some. Her family had hoped her wedding band, engagement ring, diamond rings, or her menu, a teardrop-shaped traditional wedding pendant, may have turned up as definitive proof that she was there that morning, but they never did. There is some hope that Sneha's family may find the proof they've been looking for. The city has been relying heavily on DNA testing, seeing as it has been the only real successful method of identifying remains. In 2021, on just shy of the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the city's medical examiner's office was approved for an expansion of DNA testing to identify more remains, and it appeared to work. As reported by the New York Times, the most recent identifications were made around the same time. The families of two more people got the news that they had known for two decades. Their loved ones were indeed victims of the attacks, as definitively confirmed through DNA evidence. But even today, in 2023, there are still tests being done on human remains. The New York Times reported in 2021 that they are still trying to identify 22,000 body parts, most the size of a tic-tac. So in theory, even if you're listening to this and made up your mind that Sneha was not a victim of the attacks, no way, it is possible still that her DNA can turn up on just one of these remains after all these years, and finally putting this bizarre mystery to bed. Listen, I I can get behind the theory and the evidence that like things are still developing, people are still being identified. I know it. And if her remains are identified as a victim to these attacks, I will take back everything <laughs> I have said thus far in this episode. I will I will retract it and so be it. But there's still not enough to convince me that mm-hmm. she was there. There's so many things. And again, there are so many mysteries to like what happened to people during these attacks. But again, like I said before, there were a lot of people that needed to be accounted for, even if they didn't know they were going to be there because they were working there because they were in the area, anything like there's nothing that there's right. such a huge gap because she wasn't accounted for the night before that don't convince me she was there. Yeah, and you know, I think I, I think you and I just go, keep going back to the fact that the family just kept changing their stories, kept lying about things. Mm-hmm. That did not help their case at all. No. And you know, obviously, you know, if 20 years later they would have thought that they that we would still be talking about Sneha, maybe they maybe they wouldn't have done it, you know? 
So maybe it was just a, you know, a very right. instinctual thing to just try to get Sneha's name out there. And they never would have thought that we would still be talking about her 20 years later as an unsolved mystery. Um, but that's, I mean, that's the story that, that they're sticking to. Um, so, I mean, I guess maybe out of respect, um, uh, maybe that's kind of the story that maybe we should stick to, um, at least on paper. Um, but, you know, I think I'm right there with you with the back of my head. I'm like, I'm not sure. I don't believe you really 100%. Again, again, out of there is what, like five, six theories about what mm. happened to her. And the last, like if I were to rank all of the theories that happened to her, the she is a victim of 9-11 is probably the bottom of my list. Yeah. And I should also still mention too that like the in- the lead investigator on this case um, told ABC7 New York as like recently um i believe as of last year that he still considers the case unsolved um so you know even though she is officially a victim of 9-11 and her name rests on the memorial on at ground zero to this day there are a lot of people who are still not convinced and on paper still don't know what happened to Sneha Philip. Well, so that is all that we have for you this week. Alex, thank you so much for coming on. It was, it was such a great time oh talking God. with you about this case. I, I can't, I literally could not have loved more <laughs> when you texted me that like, oh, I'm doing this. Like, you should come on. I was like, this is my <sighs> jam. Like, this is my jam. I, I could feel your excitement through the text more, messages so. for sure. So, <laughs> oh my gosh, you're so funny. So th- for, thank you for having me on this podcast. And if you ever need another guest podcast oh, host, I'm we'll available. have you back on. We will have you back on okay. for sure. So this is the first episode <laughs> I'm recording since the podcast dropped. Um, I believe this episode is going to drop in like <gasps> March or so. So we're talking about January 25th when this podcast drops. So I got a request from my good friend, Heather Holly. Hi, Heather. How's it going? That we reveal how much of the wine we drink. <laughs> so Alex, I'm going to put that on you. Okay. Okay. Almost <laughs> empty. <laughs> almost empty. Um, like the bottle's actually at a different. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, if someone wants to. That's you not even a glass. Screen record. That's not even a glass. <laughs> no, like I drink a lot of yeah. wine. No, I'm like feeling this, and I feel like this created like a whole lot of really good convo back and forth. Um, I'm yes. about the same. I'm about the same. So we're about we're pointing to the same okay, spot. We're at the same yeah, spot. we're in the same spot. We're in the same Thank spot. God. We're in the same spot. So yeah. So Alex, tell everyone. I know you're like this really cool like spin structure. Like tell everyone where where they can find your <laughs> fitness content online. Oh my god, I love you. Thank you for hyping me up. I am a fitness instructor. You could find me on Instagram. Uh, my personal account is Alex Ray, R A Y E underscore. And my fitness account is A Stata dot fit. So it's A S T A T A dot fit. Um, if you want to follow my cycle bar content, I'm a spin instructor. I have so much fun with it. And I'm going to convince Liam to uh, oh. get his butt up to New York and take a spin class. With that me. won't be happening. Let the record show that won't be happening. It's it going be to happening. be happening. It won't be happening. Thanks for the offer, though. Appreciate you. <laughs> mm, okay, we'll see. Well, thank you so much again for coming on and thank you all so much for listening we're going to put all of our sources on our website so you can read everything for yourself and probably come up with a few theories too make sure you follow us on facebook twitter and instagram and we will see you next week for another episode of crime over wine
proud member of the Podnuga Network.